Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. You have heard me talk about my Patreon a whole heck of a lot. And admit it, you've been a little curious. But did you know, as of about a week ago, Patreon started offering me the opportunity to offer you free seven-day trials. Risk-free. Get in there. Look around. I'm doing like 10 Patreon-exclusive pods a month. And you could just have Adam for no money for a week. And then if you want to stick around, great. If not, no hard feelings, bro. We're still cool. Take advantage of the seven-day free trial waiting for you now at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a long-standing contributor and staff writer at The New Yorker, and most importantly for our present purposes, the author of a new book entitled Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Hello and welcome, Michael Shulman. Hi. Thank you for joining me. I want to put something out there right off the bat. I want you to know the perspective that I'm coming from for a lot of this stuff. I mean, a lot of your book is just a, this fascinating, uh, exhaustive, but not exhausting history of the whole scope of the Oscars, Oscars and therefore just sort of the, the Hollywood movie business. But obviously there are some takeaways that people um, might have about what it all means. I just want to put this out there. Um, I don't because I don't want to sound negative. I was looking at the questions I wanted to ask you, and I felt like I was kind of beating the same drum over and over again. Um, I want to start off by saying that I love movies, and I think more importantly, I I love movies that we communally love, that the world, you know, that resonate with the world when they come out, and that continue to resonate for years to follow. And it seems to me, and I guess I would say I truly believe, really lovable and like moving movies whether they be popcorn movies oscar bait what have you are getting in shorter and shorter supply and that seems to be a trend that's not likely to abate anytime soon what do you think about that to what extent do you accept that premise you know a lot of people have been asking me you know are the oscars still relevant mm -hmm. and i always go to the larger picture of are the movies relevant that's the you question know? yeah I, you know, there have been there's been so much talk in recent years about how the how to fix the Oscars. Should they, you know, have a host, not have a host, cut categories, air all the categories, move to streaming, blah, blah, blah. I don't think any of that is going to significantly change the cultural relevance or the ratings of the Oscars, um, because I think that the structural things that are happening are much bigger and not really the fault or the uh, the purview of the Oscars. I mean, for one thing, um, just in terms of TV ratings, we're not all watching the same thing on ABC anymore as a country. That's sure. much harder to do. Um, but but secondly, the kind of movies that were winning 
Oscars or nominated for Best Picture, you know, 30, 40 years ago, don't really exist as a genre so much anymore. When you think about, I don't know, Kramer versus Kramer, um, Terms of Endearment, uh, Forrest Gump, even Titanic, you know, that kind of like big studio prestige movie isn't really in the culture so much. And that that always glued the Oscars to popular culture in a way that kept them in the conversation so that when the nominees came out, everyone had basically seen all the movies. And if they hadn't, then they knew they were supposed to. And you went out and saw, you know, The English Patient or what have you. And Hollywood is so different now. It's much more fragmented. Um, it's it's kind of like on one side you have the Marvel movies and avatars and you know big big huge tentpole blockbusters, and then on the other side you have these movies like Tar and Women Talking, these little indie movies that um, don't get huge audiences at the box office. So every year now, when the Best Picture list comes out people are kind of scratching their heads because they hadn't seen or even heard of a bunch of the movies. And it makes people angry at the Academy Awards because they think the Academy is being too obscure or snobbish. But really, there are only two answers. Like either, you know, if, if they wanted to change to suit, you know, something, some, you know, they could they could nominate more big blockbuster movies. And they kind of did this past year. They had Avatar uh, you know, Top Gun, Maverick, stuff like that, um, or just lean into the the nicheness of little indie movies and say their job is to raise those up. Um, and I think we're going to continue getting a kind of smattering of both. But I feel like the Oscars are kind of stuck in the middle. And I guess my question, the, I think the obvious thing to wonder there is, where did those movies go? I think in particular, considering that, I mean, we all know streaming movies are the, 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 the sort of, um, the emperor's no, no clothes or what have you has been exposed. Wow. Let that new movie on Netflix with so-and-so big movie start. It's probably going to be terrible. Why is it not? Ne I'll name Netflix, but I could say, you know, prime or what have you. Why is it not their model to get movie stars, people like, and attempt to make actually good movies in a mid budget tier. Well, for one thing, I just uh, came out with a big article in the New Yorker this week about the Marvel cinematic universe and how that changed the model for Hollywood so much. Uh, you know, we're in an era that is so IP driven and every studio now wants their own kind of cinematic universe um, tied to particular IP so that they can just build it out and build it out and have one blockbuster kind of beget the next 10. So what that has done in part is help squeeze out the the mid-budget studio movies like rom-coms, adult dramas, and you know, star-driven comedies. Um there's just there aren't a lot of comedies out in theater, um, which seems crazy to think about. I mean and then the sort of by adult dramas, I'm sort of thinking of those the, the the stuff we usually call Oscar bait. There is still that they still exist, but they're smaller in scale and there's not a ton of money being spent on them because studios know that it's really hard to get people out of the house to see those because 
they are happy to wait and see them on streaming, or they kind of get that same thing from a TV show like Succession or The White Lotus. Um, so all of these things, so so the, the, the incentives to make that kind of movie uh, that sort of used to populate the 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 academy list and that people all knew about because they they were going out to see them in theaters those incentives just have gotten all scrambled right i want to ask you about the marvel article uh before we talk about your book i I, like many people i'm definitely feeling the uh the, the fatigue of you so perfectly put it the plot boils down to keep glowy thing away from bad guy i've seen that many many times i've seen the universe on the brink of destruction so many times i've forgotten um I guess the you obviously did quite a bit of research and talked to quite a few people to to write that article. What is your sense and what is your sense of the industry? Where where is that stuff going? Marvel and the various universes and multiverses. How sustainable does that feel to you? How sustainable does that feel to the industry 10 years from now? Are we just still going to be recasting Batman or is there some sense of what the next frontier of universe building looks like? Oh my gosh. I hope not. I hope we're not just still on Spider-Man and Batman in in 10 years and 20 years. I personally feel really exhausted by it. And listen, it's not that these movies can't be good. No. You know, I haven't seen the newest Spider-Verse thing, but I hear it's great and very creative and that's wonderful. But I sort of wish that you know, people who were this creative and talented had different big canvases to work on that didn't involve Spider-Man, you know? <laughs> um, and so it's it's not to say that that the movies are bad because sometimes they're they're really good. And, you know, I, I watched all of the Marvel movies in one month as I was working on this piece. I did one a day and it took me a month. And look, some are better than others. Some I really enjoyed. Some I couldn't stand. Um they're overall pretty consistent in quality, um, which is why people, there's a kind of brand loyalty to them. But I also feel like they have diminishing returns after a while. And if you look at the broad, I mean, one thing that I really got a sense for writing this book, which starts in 1927 and goes through the slap in 2022, is that Hollywood has these phases, that this pendulum that swings back and forth. Um and, you know, I'm reminded of the Hollywood of the 1960s, which uh, was sort of a, an era of the crumbling studio system, uh, a Hollywood that was really out of touch with the youth audience, very threatened by television. So you saw these, you know, big sword and sandal movies and big kind of technicolor extravaganzas, big expensive musicals. And... A lot of those are fine. Some of them are terrible, you know, whatever. People all have their their favorites from that era. I certainly do. Um, But out of that grew this new kind of cinema of the 70s, the sort of easy riders and, you know, midnight cowboys, that kind of thing that that gave us the new Hollywood of the 70s. And I kind of hope that that sort of thing happens in the next phase of, of entertainment that people get so fatigued by just seeing these big huge you know franchise movies that they're they develop a a craving for you know human movies (laughs) for lack of a better term but i also think that the business model has to incentivize making those and i that's the part that i don't 
I don't know how exactly that's going to happen because right now, right now it's hard to say anything, you know, predictive about Hollywood because it's just, it's such a big, huge honking mess. I mean, even just these, the, you know, the writer strike and the possible impending SAG strike, it's like, what, where is this whole industry going? It just seems like, a you know, clusterfuck. Yeah, the uh, the nineteen you devote quite a bit of space to the nineteen seventy I think Oscars in the book that kind of stands out uh, amidst all the crazy years as as sort of the the craziest perhaps and also perhaps the most instructive for where we are right now and where we're going. Um, I want to ask you about that, but let's sort of do this a little bit more chronologically. Your book mm-hmm. is Oscar Wars: How and Why. You know, it, it, sort of briefly, did the Oscars come to? Be. They seem like something that just would naturally occur, and yet there's quite a bit more to the story than that. Yeah, I mean, the the awards, uh, as they were originally called, the Awards of Merit, were really an afterthought for the Academy when it was created. Um, so the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was started in 1927 by a cross-section of 36 very powerful people in silent era Hollywood. Uh, people like, you know, some of the Warner Brothers, Louis B. Mayer, um, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Um, and the early rhetoric of the Academy was really so utopian, you know, kind of befitting that era. They saw themselves as, as a League of Nations for Hollywood that would promote harmony and the sort of the dignity of the movies throughout the world um, and, you know, bring bring peace to the various factions of the industry and that is all very well and good. And they certainly had um, idealistic people in the academy. But that's if you look kind of under the hood of that, there were two other things going on that that was responding to. Um, one of them was uh, the encroaching unionization of the uh, creative professions, the actors, writers, and, and directors. Um, actors' equity from the East was tr- trying to make inroads in Hollywood and unionize the actors. And that was a threat to People like Louis B. Mayer, who ran their studios like Kingdoms and uh, wanted an un, you know, unrestricted labor force. So when they talk about harmony, you know, that is another way of saying that the Academy was going to come in and mediate disputes about, you know, payments or, you know, employment, stuff like that. So basically so that a union wouldn't have to do it and they could all sort of control the process. And the other thing that was going on was um, Hollywood had a really bad image problem because of this series of salacious scandals earlier in the 20s, like the Fatty Arbuckle rape and murder trial and, uh, you know, the death of William Desmond Taylor, all these kind of mysterious deaths and, you know, sex scandals and drug scandals and stuff like that. Um, So then as now there was a culture war in the country and people um, saw Hollywood as the cesspool of sin. And um, that gave rise to uh, an attempt to uh, censor the movies um, as a way of making them less less naughty, more more upstanding. Um, so because of that, the, Hollywood decided to create its own sort of self self censoring system through the Hayes Code. And uh, but but the p- people still had a, a pretty low opinion of Hollywood. And so the Academy was kind of in in, in part created to sort of put a loftier face on the entire industry. Um, and that's that's the part that kind of grew into the Academy Awards because, you know, awards of merit, it's, you know, it's it, it sounds very lofty and prestigious. An academy is, you know, you know, it's it, it it's a it's a lofty body that is about an art form um and not about these sort of uh 
these these kind of lowly, scandalous, uh, salacious scandals. Sort of like an all um, it's an all American story. You, you you make the money however you have to make the money, and it's probably not a pretty sight. And then once you have the money, you uh, new money cleans itself up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the early stars were seen as sort of nouveau riche, you know, like Fatty Arbuckle, who famously was um, was tried for this scandal in his hotel room where a woman died, and he was uh, he was tried for her her death. Um, you know, he he was sort of living large and like driving fancy cars and like eating big meals and. The, the press had this sort of skepticism of him before the scandal. So, yeah, there was a kind of like class tension to it, uh, for sure. And an element of anti-Semitism because all of these um, studio heads or, or the vast majority of them were Jews and uh, and immigrants or children of immigrants. So, yeah, it was a, it was a kind of change in the American power structure that made the sort of conservative element of the country very wary and in some cases hostile toward Hollywood. So um, anyway, so so the Academy got started with those goals in mind. The awards were kind of a thing they got around to two years in, in 1929. It was a short ceremony, like 10 minutes over, you know, at the end of a banquet for their second anniversary dinner. And over the course of the 30s, they really grew and became more popular. And they were uh, broadcast on the radio and people in Hollywood suddenly wanted this new gold thing, this like shiny object. Um, and meanwhile, the, uh, the, the guilds, the new, the new guilds like SAG and the screenwriters guild, um, they were at war with the Academy over the labor issues and, uh, it got really messy. It got really nasty you know, the, the guilds would instruct their members to resign en masse from the Academy or boycott the Oscars. And it was Frank Capra, the, uh, famous director who was, uh, the, a longtime president of the Academy. He loved the Academy. He loved the Academy Awards. And he was the one who finally said, okay, you know what? If everyone hates this sort of the fact that we're involved in labor disputes and, you know, negotiating contracts and stuff, we're just not going to do that stuff anymore. We're just going to drop all of that. And uh, at the end of the 30s, that's what they did. They kind of ceded their power in labor relations. And what remained was the Oscars, because that was the one thing they did that everyone loved. So I want to ask you two questions. They may or may not essentially be the same question. I'll, I'll let you decide. What do you see as the overarching theme of the book? And that's one question. The other is, in general, how is what the Oscars actually are different from what those of us watching at home might think they are? Mm, okay. I think the overarching theme is power mm. because the the Oscars are a kind of um, you know they're a kind of like divining rod like they 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 help redraw the, they're constantly redrawing the lines of like who's in the establishment of Hollywood and so a lot of the characters of the book are either people who embodied that establishment like Louis B Mayer and uh, you know Frank Capra um, and then people who are trying to sort of worm their way into the establishment um and become it and sort of overthrow the previous generation or or something like that so um so i see it as as a book about power in hollywood ultimately um to your second question i think that you know the first the first line of the book is the oscars it should be said at the start 
are always getting it wrong. And I think when we watch as spectators, you know, there's always frustration because they don't give the Oscar to your favorite movie or they snub your favorite actor. And, um, you know, they, they make a lot of head scratching choices. And I think that if you look at the Oscars as this perfect barometer of cinematic worth, you're always going to be disappointed or enraged because that's not what they are. You know, that doesn't exist. There is no best, like there is no way to measure art in any scientific way. Um, what they are is a way to see how Hollywood views itself because the Academy is a group of professionals in the industry and the movies that they reward. Yes. They're the movies that they like throughout the year and want to vote for, but there's so much more going on. You know, there's campaigning, there's the sort of economic forces behind it. There's their, their political forces. Um, there's people anxieties, you know, people's anxieties about how, you know, how the industry is changing, how tastes are changing. And those always inform what wins and what doesn't. And if you look at the Oscars as a sort of like Hollywood's mirror of itself, then I think they're easier to understand. But I also think that part of the fun, you know, when people ask me, like, should they exist? Like, why do we care about them? I don't think we have to worry about that too much. Like, they're fun. They're they're enjoyable. I like, talk, we, you know, we enjoy talking about them. We like arguing about them. Arguing about what the Academy gets wrong is sort of part of Oscar season, like watching the horse race. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that, you know, movies aren't meant to be ranked. Art is not meant to be ranked, um, you know, like sports teams, but art is meant to be discussed. And so I think, I think, I think the discussion, like having a, having a, a platform, you know, for a couple months every year where we all discuss what we loved, what we didn't love, um, what the Academy is missing, what they're getting right. Um, I think that's fine. I think that's, that's good. It's enjoyable. And it's, it's a good way to just ha like give us all a platform to talk about our own tastes. Yeah, of course. And people are of course welcome to care as little or as much as, as they want to, that goes without saying, let, let me ask you about the, the voting, the voters. I assume you've had conversations, candid conversations with any number of voters you know, we hear a lot of times about, well, the Academy really wanted to show with this vote or whatever. On a real personal level, if I'm so-and-so who was nominated for something in 1982 and I still get a bunch of screeners or links or whatever, and I and now it's time for me to actually fill out a computer form or check some boxes or whatever, to what extent or how many of those people are thinking this is this is what I like. I think this was the best picture. And to what extent are those people really thinking, I think this is the direction the Academy ought to be going in to send a message to the world that we respond to this or that sort of film or this or, or that sort of message. How much of it is about liking movies? How much of it is about I'm going to vote for so-and-so or will not vote for so-and-so because they're my friend or they stole a table from me one time? And how much of it is about the statement Hollywood is sending to the world? Is that something individual voters really think about actively? Well, if you talk to individual voters, they all say, oh, we I take this extremely seriously. I watch all of the movies. I think about who is best at their craft. You know, they everyone says that. That's not true. Does, the, does that mean that that's true? <laughs> no, because yeah. as we know... When you get, you know, there, there's around around 10,000 people in the Academy and 
when you get everyone's sort of collective taste in, you know, in balloted form, they reveal other things. And, you know, what I tried to do with this book was focus in on those years where you really saw like something else happening below the surface of the horse race. Um, so the book is, by the way, people should know the book is not every year. Uh, it doesn't cover every single year of the Academy Awards. It's uh, 11 chapters and each one goes really deep into a particular year or even a category or a kind of conflict that played out through the Oscars, um, roughly one per decade. So there are years, for instance, like um, the 1970 awards that that you brought up. So what one of the things that interested me about that year was that the previous year, 1969, the best picture was Oliver, which was the first and only best picture winner uh, that was rated G. Of course, the rating system was new, so nothing had been rated anything really before that. A year later, the best picture winner was Midnight Cowboy, the first and only best picture winner to be rated X. So how do you get from G to X in one year? Like, what does that tell you about that year in Hollywood? And of course, 1969, a very eventful year. I mean, and um, and when you look a little closer at it and what was happening, Gregory Peck was the president of the Academy, and he realized that the Academy was falling out of touch with the youth vote. Um, you know, movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which weren't winning. And um, and he realized that a lot of the people in the Academy were sort of holdovers from the Hollywood of the 30s. And so he really pursued very actively this initiative to bring in, you know, recruit people who were the young, hip, new Hollywood crowd, like, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda and, um, you know, Candace Bergen helped him by by going to all of her friends and like getting them to to join uh, Dustin Hoffman. And then he started a rule where he, if you hadn't worked for seven years, you would be relegated to a non-voting status. Of course, that happened also like 50 years later after the, in the wake of the Oscar so white scandal and uh, where they brought in a ton of new diverse members and started demoting uh, people who had been inactive in the industry to emeritus status, which is a great sort of euphemism for you are no longer relevant and you're no longer voting. Um, and that was the year that Moonlight won over La La Land. And so when you look at those two years, those this is a long-winded way to answer your question, no, but I, like I feel it. like those two years show you a, a, like moments where the whole country was changing, where Hollywood movies were changing, where tastes were changing, where there was a kind of new crowd sort of coming in and displacing the old. And there's no and what interested me in looking at Oscar history was trying to sort of deconstruct moments like that, years like that, where it's not just, you know, there were a bunch of movies and people voted and something won, but that there there were these really important breakthroughs that sort of signaled moments of, of evolution and, uh, and upheaval. Another such year, maybe to not such a great extent, but uh, another such year was 1957, if you wouldn't mind telling everybody a little bit about there was an Academy Award given to uh, in the category of Best Motion Picture Story, a category that no longer exists, uh, and it was given to a writer named Robert Rich, a man who didn't exist and had never existed. Can you explain how 
that is true. Yes. So uh, this was one of my favorite kind of semi-forgotten Oscar scandals of the past. Um, so yeah, they gave this award. It was to, to someone named Robert Rich. It was for a movie called The Brave One, which is about a Mexican boy and his pet bull. Have you seen it? Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's cute. I All don't right. know. All right. <laughs> it's nothing super special. Um, so Robert Rich wasn't there to receive the award. And then he didn't show up to claim it in the days afterward. And then people started really asking questions like, who, where is this guy? He, you know, and it turned out the producers of the brave one, uh, the, the King brothers, they were called, they had a nephew named Robert Rich, but he said that he actually wasn't the guy who wrote the movie, which is already strains credulity. Uh, and then the rich brothers said, I mean, the King brothers said, uh, Oh, um, you know, we actually, it, Robert Rich was this guy. He was an XGI. We met him in Europe a few years ago and bought this story idea from him. You know, he might be in Europe. He might be in Australia. We don't know where he is. We, we're trying to reach him. Um, and then Life Magazine actually drew an illustration of Robert Rich based on what the King Brothers remembered of him. So it's this incredible article where it's like there's a, a drawing of a man and he is in, it has like his features like it points out aquiline nose you know 175 pounds uh you know parted hair and um basically he was a phantom he was a phantom winner he didn't exist and the reason he didn't exist was that uh robert rich was a um a pseudonym for the real person who had written the story for the movie which was dalton trumbo uh one of the the most famous of the blacklisted screenwriters of the 50s was he ever able to, I mean, in his lifetime, did they, did they ever actually hand him the Oscar and say, now that we, the blacklisting thing is over, you are an actual, you're an Oscar winner, except you're a statuette. So what I love about this story of Trumbo was that he was so clever and funny. And of course the blacklist is a really dark chapter, probably the darkest chapter in Hollywood history. And yet Trumbo, who, you know, had already been in prison by that point uh, for defying the House and American Activities Committee, he kind of realized that this was a golden opportunity to sort of turn the tables on the people in instituting the blacklist on the powers that be um, by sort of embarrassing the academy. And so he would have he would play it up. He, he didn't say he was Robert Rich, but people started guessing. And then he would have reporters come over and say, well, it might be me or it might be my friend Michael Wilson, who was another blacklisted screenwriter. Um, I don't know. Maybe we were maybe we're writing all of the movies that win Academy Awards. Like maybe Robert Rich is everybody. And he um he kind of used it as this this way to tease the industry because it was this open secret that the people who were supposedly blacklisted were still working. They were just working under fake names and for bargain rates, and they couldn't really do anything about it because they were desperate. Um, but the studios were taking advantage of the situation by, you know, paying them way below what they would usually make and then pretending they didn't exist. Um, and so the, he basically Trumbo used this Oscar stand Oscar scandal to sort of make hay in the press. And sort of after two years, finally, he got the Academy to drop its its ban on giving um, Oscar nominations to people on the blacklist. And then he finally came out as Robert Rich. And he had a lot of fun with it. Like he gave these, this speech where he uh, talked about how Robert Rich uh, is the unknown artist. And he said he has as many faces as the, as the blacklist itself. 
So in a way, like everyone is Robert Rich. Robert Rich is everyone and no one. Now, what what movie scene does that remind you of? Of course, it's Grapes of Wrath. Uh, no, I was. Well, what I'm going for is I'm Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I've never seen Spartacus. I apologize. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, most people, if they haven't seen it, they know the scene where everyone steps forward and says, "I am Spartacus." And they're trying to protect the real Spartacus. And that's sort of what he was saying about Robert Rich is that, you know, Robert Rich is the it's about the power of the pseudonym. And Dalton Trumbo famously wrote Spartacus uh, a few years after this happened and finally broke the blacklist by getting his own name on the movie, uh, along with another movie called Exodus. So anyway, did he ever get his Academy Award? The answer is yes, but it took almost 20 years. So in 1975, he was not doing well health-wise. And the King brothers, who had uh, produced this movie, sent an affidavit to the Academy saying he wrote the movie, although everyone had known this since you know, the 50s. And uh, he was an old man. And uh, Walter Mirisch, who was the president of the Academy by then, uh, went over to his house and handed it to him. And there's this picture where you see this, this sort of old you know, uh, Dalton Trumbo sort of looking very ambiguously at his his Oscar, his very late Oscar. And I spoke to his daughter, uh, Mitzi Trumbo, who said that, you know, she she's like, I, I wish I could feel more more reverence toward this award, but it came decades too late. And he didn't get to go up and give a speech, you know, in a in a, a fancy tux. He would have loved to do that. Yeah, it's obviously too little, too late. Um I want to ask you, you mentioned the ways in which uh, campaigning for Oscars has changed over the years. Don't ask me why, but like four days ago, I, I was I was doing a different pod and I was looking at the 1999 Oscars and even having never seen Shakespeare in Love, I did about 10 minutes on like how on earth did Shakespeare in Love win anything? And it turns out you devote a fair amount of time to that in your book. There's some pretty concrete reasons and Harvey Weinstein plays a, an outsized role in that. And 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 I would say in um in evolu- a really really big change that remains with us to this day in the movie industry and in the Oscar industry if it may be so called this is how it seemed to me at the time watching Miramax and other studios like that in the 90s it seemed like there'd always been the big studio movies and then there was the little indies and the foreign films and sometimes something got lucky got a got the right break resonated with audiences in a real underdog sort of way and then that movie won Oscars or at least was nominated and ended up making a bunch of money unexpectedly it seemed to me that the Miramax Miramax model was we can engineer that. We can make these movies that either are or appear to be quirky or artsy while also making them just approachable enough to a general audience. We won't spend the money on the movie. We'll just place bets on on six little movies. And if one of them hits and gets a bunch of nominations, it'll end up making a bunch of money. And it was sort of a cynical way of using the Oscars um, from the jump as part of the plan to promote and grow and sell the movie. I I look at the Oscars nowadays and I see a lot of movies, maybe not following that blueprint, but certainly attempting to. It seems like they're conceived of as yes, but you know, everything everywhere all at once. If we can get a lot of people excited about this, the Oscars will make this a very profitable film. Am I am I way off? I don't remember that happening before the 90s and I feel like it's never really gone away since then. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I have some caveats to that. Sure. One is that Everything Everywhere All at Once was a huge hit before the Oscars. It came out. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely a year right. before yeah. it won. For sure. Yes. And it was a big it was a it was a breakout hit. You know, I mean, A24 is sort of, uh, you know, they're, that's what they do is like they create these sort of art house sensations. So um, but I would say you're right in the sense that we're kind of living in the Oscar landscape that Harvey Weinstein created. And the way this started was the indie movie, uh, the, the indie movie industry of the 80s was pretty small and you had a couple breakout hits here and there. But in the 90s and uh, sort of late 80s going to the 90s, uh, Miramax created this uh, this model to sort of push our indie movies into the mainstream and make them big business. Harvey Weinstein always said he wanted to break out of the art house ghetto. And he started doing that with movies like uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape and The Crying Game. And then the big, big, big one was Pulp Fiction, which was the first indie movie to make uh, over $100 million. And uh, so, yeah, he would he would really bang on a huge drum, spend tons of money uh, on marketing and publicity. Uh, he was great at publicity stunts, you know, like when Daniel Day-Lewis went to Washington, D.C. to talk about disability rights and screened uh, My Left Foot, which just happened to be, you know, right before the Academy Award nominations. Um, the crying game, famously, The Secret, Don't Tell the Secret, What's the Secret? You know, he was just brilliant at those things. And I hate to, you know, give Harvey Weinstein credit for stuff, but that was one, that was one of the things that he did well, was like sell movies. Of course, he was also uh, raping people and uh, many other terrible things, uh, bullying, uh, he was awful toward a lot of the filmmakers whose uh, movies he didn't think were going to be big successes. He would bury movies. Anyway, we all know the Harvey Weinstein has a, a pretty bad side. Um, but part of his formula for creating these big hits out of pretty edgy indie movies was to chase Academy Awards and to campaign very aggressively for Academy Awards. And uh, he sort of built up his playbook over the course of the decade to do that. And by the time it reached 1999 with Shakespeare in Love, it was, uh, you know, he, it had just built into this gigantic machine. And um, he would do things like have his staff call Academy members at home and, uh, you know, sort of ask them, have you seen the movie? Have you seen the movie? Did you like the movie? Um, you know, he would have uh, tons of ads everywhere constantly he'd you know have his filmmakers and actors go on this never-ending circuit of parties uh, and cocktail receptions and stuff and shaking people's hands uh if there were like five academy members in santa fe he'd have a big screening in santa fe and have people come to it so he really just sort of turned the oscars into a kind of ground game that had existed before in bits and pieces, but he really sort of turned it into into the playbook. And so then um, Shakespeare in Love won over Saving Private Ryan. It was one of the, you know, it really went down as the ugliest best picture fight in Oscar history. And there's a lot of, you know, details about how that exactly happened. I spent a long chapter on, on, on it uh, and why it got so nasty. But the following year, 
uh, DreamWorks, which had done Saving Private Ryan, they were so shocked to lose, you know, for Spielberg's big World War II movie. Uh, They were just stunned and, frankly, enraged to have lost. So the next year they had American Beauty. And so they decided, well, we're not going to we're not going to let that happen again. Like we're not losing to Harvey Weinstein again. So they basically took their, the, the, the Weinstein playbook as people were starting to think of it. And they doubled it. You know, they, they outspent every other studio on advertisements and um, hired a a small army of campaign consultants uh, and they won. And then the next year they did the same for gladiator and invented the kind of, um, uh, they had these screenings where every night there'd be a different, you know, talk back with someone else from the movie. So they kind of created this other campaign strategy of, 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 um, you know, of talkbacks of, of, of panels. Um, and it basically just grew and grew and grew because it was an arms race where every studio suddenly felt, okay, we have to do whatever Weinstein did to win for Shakespeare and love, um, or else we're going to get left in the dust. And that is how this microcosm this cottage industry, I mean, of uh, of campaigns, of Oscar campaigns, how it really uh, was created. Um, and Shakespeare in Love is a really interesting example. I mean, going back to your question about, you know, do people vote for something because they just think it's the best thing or because of some of these other factors? Um, I've, over the years, the story has kind of gotten reduced to, oh, Harvey cheated and the wrong movie won. But there was really so much, so much else going on. I mean, for one thing, Shakespeare in Love came late in the season. Uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan had been out in the summer of '98. Shakespeare in Love came out six months later, pretty much something like that, at the end of the year. So it was new, it was fresh. It was about actors who are the biggest branch of the Academy. It was funny and light and romantic, um, and so it was kind of the opposite tone of. Saving Private Ryan. And people did like it. Like they really actually did like it. Another thing that was going on was another little factor was that um, people were now watching Academy nominees on VHS tapes. Um, And something like Shakespeare in Love works pretty well in VHS, whereas Saving Private Ryan kind of loses its epic scale. And so that was another little advantage that that movie had. Um, it it had more appeal to women. It actually had women characters. There are no women in, in uh, Saving Private Ryan. So there were like reasons why people wanted to vote for Shakespeare in Love. But there was also this gigantic campaign behind it that people resented, even though it won. You know, the same people who were voting, who like voted for it and, made, you know, brought it to victory were furious at Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and there was this eruption. The very next day, there was an eruption of resentment and uh, and anger toward him. Elizabeth was also nominated that year. I would argue holds it better than either of the two movies we've been talking about, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. <laughs> I love Elizabeth. I mean, I think there's a really good case that Kate Blanchett was the one who was really robbed. Yeah. And best actress because she lost to Gwyneth Paltrow. So uh, let me put it this way. Of the... Um, Best Picture winners of the last, whatever, 8, 10, 12 years. Um, how many would you say you really enjoyed? It's It seems to me that every year the movie industry ought to be able to make one movie. This is always my, my, my thing. A movie that is both good and great. 
And it feels like very often we're, you know, like this year, well, this year is a bad example because a a good and great movie did win. But you can, you know, we're we're getting to the point where it's, well, Top Gun, it's really, really good for what it is. And it's amazing to just see the scenes. And then there's this great, important movie that might be a little bit of a, a slog to get through. And I looked back at the winners for the last decade or so, the one that stood out to me personally, Shape of Water. I just really, really enjoyed it, but I also felt like I was watching a real piece of, you know, a work of art. But then I look at other movies, um, the artist comes to mind, even even Birdman. I almost start to feel sometimes like there's, and this has got a lot to do with the Oscar campaigning, I'm sure, like the way that I understand the old snake oil salesman thing, which is that the guy comes to town and shows everybody the product that cures what ails you, and he's got plants in the crowd that are just going, man, this is really good. We should probably listen to this guy. And and, and I, I feel like, I'll use Birdman as the example. I just kept hearing, wow, Michael Keaton, remember we used to love him. We can love him again. This is great. This is amazing. I went, I saw it. I left going, wow, that was amazing. And then I feel like I wake up six months or five years later and I go, was that very good? Was that really a great movie that I just saw there? And and use that as an example. Maybe you watch Birdman once a week, but I, I don't think too many too many people do. Uh, I guess I don't really have a, a, a question here. But does... <laughs> I just want to rant about Birdman, which I, <laughs> I'm fine with. I, I didn't really get much out of Birdman. I, I was really rooting for Boyhood that year. It seems like this um, happens more. And that would have been a terrific choice. But it, I also it just hated seems like The this... Shape of Water, I'm sorry to say. I really didn't like it, and I couldn't believe it won. I understood mm-hmm. why it won, actually. I think I think it's a movie in, in, in part about sort of movie cliches. It's like a pastiche of kind of sci-fi and 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 fantasy movies um from earlier eras and so it had a particular appeal and yeah. i mean the, some of the other movies that year i think that was the year of um i call me by your name which i loved i don't know there was just other stuff that year that seemed niche to me that i loved but that it made sense that it wouldn't win because to win you really have to sort of develop a broad base of support among a lot of different kinds of people and so that's why Movies that are about Hollywood in some way often win. I mean, I would say that's another factor in Shakespeare in Love is that mm-hmm. it's it's, a, it's about show business. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but even more so, I think to make show business movie people feel like they're tied to Shakespearean actors is yeah, very satisfying sure. to the ego. For sure, every screenwriter watching that movie is like, "Oh, I'm Shakespeare." Shakespeare was a, <laughs> a young guy with writer's block. Right. Um, good to know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think often and that's in a way what makes the sort of the the movies that feel different. So exciting, like when Moonlight won or Parasite Parasite, I think, is my personal favorite of the last bunch of uh, Best Picture winners. Sure. I just thought it was so cool. They act, I, I loved it. And then I thought it was so incredibly cool that it actually won because uh, it seemed like a, a forward looking choice. Um, you know, everything everywhere also felt like a forward-looking choice. I didn't personally love it as much as 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 a parasite. Um, but the, yeah, there's always like the movie that's kind of the safe choice too. This the, the sort of nostalgic throwback kind of choice, like uh, like Green Book, which people still complain about. I mean, I would say often, often uh, uh, to win, it's it's. If you, if you, okay, cold movies don't often win. So like The Power of the Dog, I didn't think that was going to win. 
and it lost to Coda, which is a pretty sappy movie in my opinion. Um, but it has a lot of heart. And, you know, I think, I think there's a kind of tendency to vote your heart, vote for the movie that sort of made you tear up at the end. Uh, and so, uh, I think that probably explains why, uh, Green Book won over, uh, Roma. Um, and everything everywhere sort of also has that kind of tug at the heartstrings moment at the end. It's not, it's not totally sappy, but it it has that element. Um, and then I also think it, it, it can really help for a movie to feel like an underdog or be about underdogs. That's something that you could say about Parasite, Coda, and everything everywhere. It's about people sort of trying to, it, it's about, it's about underdogs. And so the movie itself feels like it's the underdog in the race and people have form a sentimental attachment to it or they're rooting for it. Um, I'm trying to like psychoanalyze the Academy, which is, I guess what the whole book is um, trying to figure out why people make these decisions and what the other factors are. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that when you, when you sort of go back and try to pick apart, like how did this win? Of course, a lot of it, as you were saying, it has to do with sort of hype, creating more hype. And suddenly everyone's talking about this one thing. And then maybe years later, we look back and think, why the hell did that win? That's not, it's not, that wasn't good. That was the wrong thing to win. But again, the first line of the book is the Oscars were always getting it wrong. Let me ask you one more question. Just look to look forward to the future. Um, you know, we you sort of touched on this at the top of our conversation. This year's Oscars were the third lowest rated in history, but nothing's getting, you know, Gunsmoke used to get a 60 share, as we all know. Um, I don't think Jimmy Kimmel is a comedy legend, but I think he's fine. I don't think the movies were bad. I just think it's, it's a sign of the times. I guess my question is... Uh, not will the Oscars be relevant in 10 years. It's everything's just getting diluted. My, my question is just what, where will the Oscars be in 10 years? Like what, what, what is, what is it going to look like? Well, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about the larger forces that are behind this question of, are the Oscars relevant? Um, you know, the ratings really, they hit a low, the year of uh, pandemic year one, when they were in the train station, like people just weren't focused on movies or awards that year. That makes sense. And they've kind of crept back up since then. So they're going up, but those, the, the nineties kind of ratings, like the year of Titanic, the, the, those are not coming back. Like that audience isn't coming back. People just don't want, as I said, it's hard to get the entire country to watch ABC all in one night. You know, that's just not how people even, function anymore it's not how they how how we watch tv um i don't think the oscars are gonna are going anywhere but um i think they've always evolved like they've and they've gone through these other periods of irrelevance or not irrelevance but you know struggle of of disconnect with popular culture i mean again it's like the the sort of late 60s era that when gregory peck was in charge he saw oh my gosh like if our if you know, if our best picture winner is like Oliver and it's 1969, it's like the Academy didn't even catch up with the sixties until they were over. So I don't know if this is a forever kind of decline um, or whether the sort of forces will align again, that sort of keeps the the Oscars aligned with popular culture, popular consciousness. Um, 
you could say the slap was one thing that sort of it certainly got everyone's attention. Maybe it got some more people to tune in. Who knows? Um, you were there. But I don't know. What? You were there. You you did you hear? The, I was. Did you yeah, hear the slap there. with your own ears? I was there. I was in the balcony. I saw it. I I heard Will Smith screaming from below. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was quite an evening. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just interested. You know, I don't think it. They need to go back to the. the, the there, there was no like golden age of the Oscars that where they were ever sort of perfect. Like there's always something that was that they were struggling with. And even from year one, you know, the Oscars were on this very unsteady ground where talkies were coming in and silent movies were becoming extinct. Uh, you know, year one of the Oscars, all of the movies were all the nominated movies were silent movies and then they gave a special award to the jazz singer the first big talkie and then by year two all of the nominee movies had sound so just th- that like we're, we've never the oscars are never on this this steady ground because the industry is never on steady ground and they're always changing and sort of struggling to keep up with the times and they're often like a lagging indicator because you know the, the the academy is like a big ship, you know, slow to turn around. Um, but that said, I think they've really evolved in interesting ways over the past decade or so. I mean, you know, the this the sort of diversity initiative after Oscar So White um, has really changed the makeup of the academy, and you know, in, in part, it's it's a more international body, which I think helps explain why uh, you know Parasite was able to become the first non-English movie to win best picture. Um, I'm interested in where this conversation goes about gendered categories, uh, which has been a discussion, a big discussion around award shows recently. Um, yeah, I just, I just think, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't know if, um, if this era of Hollywood is going to create a new sort of 1970s esque a golden age of something else that grows out of it. But I hope so. On the other hand, I don't know. I mean, as I was finishing the book, it did occur to me, is this the history of something that is on some level over, which was the first century of, you know, the the Academy Awards. And now we're kind of at the end of that story where they're they're just not their their place in the culture has uh has kind of ended. I don't know. Yeah, as you know, the the truth is probably somewhere in between. The golden age of the Oscars is almost certainly behind us, but uh, they're not totally irrelevant either. They're not going to cancel them a year from now or two years from now. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary. It'll be the 100th Academy Awards in three or four years. It's a long story with a lot of fascinating detail, and you've brought together so much of it, whatever era of Hollywood is as a person's sweet spot i love personally the old hollywood stuff but all the way from that up to the very recent present it's all in this book and i recommend people check it out oscar wars a history of hollywood in gold sweat and tears thank you so much for your time and your book michael shulman thanks so much for having me 